This morning we're finding ourselves back in the book of Joshua, as we've been. And just as as you turn there, and as you think about uh, Joshua, the Israelites coming into the land, um, and uh, we've been talking a lot about courage, and we'll do some review in just a moment. Uh, But uh, there's not many of us, uh, and I think, when I say many of us, maybe not specifically in this group, but in society in general, there's not many of us uh, that don't love a good underdog story. Um, uh, most, of, most of you, I hope and pray, uh, are going to be rooting for the Rams tonight because you want the underdogs to win. I had to put something about the Super Bowl in there, sorry. But the truth of the matter is we love a good underdog story, right? I mean, there's been so many movies that have been made and sports stories that we've seen. And just in general in life, we love the story of someone who has no business uh, doing well in life. Maybe it's because of poverty, maybe it's because of an injury if it's a sports thing. Uh, And whatever it might be, and we find ourselves rooting for a person that everything is stacked against them. And the world might say, there's no hope, you're not going to amount to anything. And when we watch those stories or we hear about those stories of people who seemingly rise up from uh, nothing and have no potential yet somehow find their way to the top, that is a story that has resounded throughout the years. There are books that are written of of that story. There are movies that we would watch. There are daily uh, times in which even just scrolling through social media, you will see stories and people love the story of an underdog, someone who has uh, risen above what everyone thought could be. An impossible situation has become possible. We love that story. And I think that's partially because we are wired uh, that way to, to really root for those people who uh, are, are underdogs, who don't seem to have hope. And deep down inside, many of us, if we've come to Jesus, we understand that we are that person that had no hope, no desire for God. We were walking the wrong direction, and yet God, uh, in his grace, uh, took us and brought us to him. And so I believe in our hearts, uh, whether saved or unsaved, that we have an understanding of this underdog story that gives us so much hope and so much uh, just enjoyment. So just it's a great feeling. We're going to talk about somebody today that is the ultimate underdog, if you will. It's somebody that had everything stacked against her, that didn't seem like there'd be any hope for her life, and yet we're going to see that God takes her and uses her in a mighty way. Uh, if you know the story of Rahab, we've mentioned Rahab before. Uh, we talked about her when we were in the book of Matthew looking at the genealogy of Jesus. So this won't be the first time you've seen the, the name of Rahab. And Rahab is the character that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And she does. She has everything stacked against her. She seems to be the ultimate underdog. Somebody that God could never use if the world was to describe her. And yet God uses her in a mighty way. And that's what we're going to see, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, so let's just go back for a moment to look at some of uh, our review here. What we've seen so far in the book of Joshua, we've looked at chapter 1 and, and uh, two, two messages there, and now we're moving on to chapter 2. Chapter 1 has shown us that Joshua has been called, he is the new leader of Israel, he has been called to have courage in taking the promised land that God has promised to the Israelite people says, this is your land, you will come back to this land, it is promised to you. And Joshua is given the mission of going into the land and taking the land. And so we see that that is where Joshua begins, and the rest of the book is going to show us exactly how that happens. How the mission of taking the promised land, as Joshua has courage, will happen. 
We also then saw that courage is not just the courage that the world says. It's not just, uh, you know, being the, st- being strong in and of yourself, but it's to rely on God. It's to trust in God's promises, to trust in His laws, and to trust in His presence. That true courage is only found in God. As we look at the New Testament, true courage is only found as we uh, allow Jesus Christ to be in our lives and to be with us as he's promised he will be. And so we've looked at that so far. It's not the courage the world says, but the courage of God. And for that very reason, you know, we read this book and it's called Joshua. And I've been kind of convicted even this week and not even convicted, just something that has been going through my mind. That as we go through scripture, Whatever story or whatever, uh, whatever passage we're looking at, we need to be very careful not to make this book about people. Because ultimately, even though this book of Joshua, specifically within the Bible, is, is about how Joshua has taken the mission, it's really a story about God. Every book of the Bible points us to God. It's not about look, looking at a person and saying this is somehow the person that we need to be, but it's looking at God and saying we need to be more like him. And so we remember that, that courage and everything that's going to happen, everything that Joshua's going to do is not a result of his own strength. It's not a result of his own inner courage. It's not a result of, of all the things that he has done, but it's a result of what God has done and what he continues to do through the life of Joshua. And then last week, we looked at the fact that this is not just even about Joshua. It's not about what God is going to do through Joshua. But the mission of courage was for Joshua, but also for all of Israel. That Joshua was meant to go into the land with the people. He wasn't a one-man show that would go in and take the land by himself in a blaze of glory. But Joshua was to take the people. That courage was not, is not just an individual thing, but it's a, a, a matter of a community coming together to have courage and trusting in God's presence and in his laws and in his promises. And we looked at the fact that that is true for us today as well. That as we take on the mission of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not just about one or two of us going forward and, and charging ahead alone, but it's to be a community of courage with one another. And so that's what we've seen so far in the first chapter of Joshua. Now in chapter 2, we're going to look at the whole chapter. We'll read it in just a moment. But we're going to see this point, that courageous faith not only can be found in Joshua, the one who is called by God to do this, not only is courageous faith able to be found in Israel, the people who will be taking the land, but courageous faith can be found in anyone. In anyone, and why do we say this? Well, we're talking about Rahab. Rahab is remembered for her faith, and we see Rahab in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. But let's keep in mind, if you know anything about Rahab, first of all, the first thing we we come to know when we read this, she's living in Jericho, which points out a couple things. She's a pagan in the sense that she has probably, and we can't know this for sure, but at least at some point in her life, has been worshiping the pagan gods of Jericho, the Canaanites, because she is a Canaanite. She is not an Israelite. She is not one of the people that is from Abraham's line that has been promised to have the blessing to the world. And then not only is she a pagan Canaanite, but she's also, as we read here in just a moment, a prostitute, someone who has sold herself for a profit, sold herself for standing, whatever it might be, that is her, that is her profession. She has chosen that lifestyle, which is a lifestyle of sexual immorality. And so for the world to look at this and to think about this, she's 
someone who is apart from God's people at the time. She is a prostitute, someone who is not living in the way that God would have her to live. And yet today, we are going to see that God not only showed her mercy, he saves her, he uses her, and then not only uses her here in the book of Joshua, but as we've already seen in the book of Matthew chapter 1, he uses Rahab to be in the line of lineage of Jesus Christ. This pagan prostitute would become the great-great-great-grandmother, whatever, how many greats you want to put in there, of Jesus himself. That is what God does to people even who the world would say have no hope. And so courageous faith is not only available for a specific type of people. Courageous faith is available for anyone and everyone who will simply come to Christ, come to God, and have faith in him. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told of Rahab in the New Testament. I know I already had you turn to Joshua, but before we get there, if you just put your finger there, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 If you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter 11, chapter 11 talks about faith, talks about what faith is, talks about the importance of faith, and then talks about all the people throughout the Old Testament that were examples of faith that we should follow. And so I won't read the whole chapter here, but he goes through many of the people that we're familiar with in the Old Testament. But then as we come to verse 31... This is what we see, and the, the writer of Hebrews says this of Rahab. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish. It's what we just talked about. Rahab, the prostitute, that's what she was, but she was to be something else and something more. And through faith, God has used her. So we see that Rahab is remembered for her faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Her courageous faith that she had was forever memorialized here in Hebrews chapter 11. There was something special about her faith that God wants us to remember. And I believe that is that she had courageous faith even though the world said or or our minds might think there's no hope for her. Instead, through faith, God used her in a mighty way. So the question I want to ask today as we look at the story of Rahab, as we look at what happens here in chapter 2, the question is this, what does courageous faith look like and how can we have it? And I believe we can take notes from the life of Rahab. We can take notes as we look at what she does here and we can apply some of those same principles to our lives as well. With that, let us turn to chapter 2, if you haven't already, and we will read the whole chapter here and see what happens. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from uh, Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men... I'm sorry. True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued, uh, pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
Before the men lay down, she came, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea uh, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, to whom you devoted to, destru- to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by this Lord that I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she set them down by a rope, let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned, they came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now at first glance, what we see here happening in chapter 2 is a continuation of what we've been seeing happen in the life of Joshua and in Israel. It's time for them to go take the land, and so Joshua sends two spies out. If you remember, uh, Moses sends 12 spies out in the book of Numbers, uh, ten come back and say the lands, their people are too great, they're too strong, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb, they came back and said the this is the land is ours because God has given to us, given us to, given it to us. Let's go forward. And, and this is now Joshua sends two spies. He sends them secretly, so none, nobody in Israel even really knows that these men are going out. These men are going out to just get a lay of the land to see what's happening, what to expect when they come into the promised land. Some people have said that this is a point that Joshua actually failed in his faith. I don't believe this is true. I believe Joshua is just doing due diligence as a military leader. You want to know what you're getting into before you go into something. And so he sends two spies. He sends them out to just get a lay of the land to see what's going on. Keep in mind, in just a few chapters, we're going to see what happens to Jericho. There's this very uh, very interesting strategic plan of how to take the city. And it has nothing to do with traditional wisdom. And But at this point, uh, before the Israelites have been told to circle the, the city and walk around the walls, before any of that has happened, God has not told Joshua how he's going to take the land. He has simply told Joshua that the land is yours because I've given it to you. So Joshua doesn't know yet what God's plan is, but he wants to send his spies out to get an idea of what's going on. Now in the midst of this story, then we encounter this woman named Rahab. And I believe that this whole chapter really 
talks a lot about Rahab. The New Testament three times mentions Rahab. It's pretty obvious that God wants us to understand something about her life and understand something about the situation she finds herself in. So we're going to look at four points this morning on what courageous faith is and what it looks like. The first point that we need to talk about tonight is this, that courageous, or tonight, today, courageous faith has the right object. Courageous faith has the right object. Now I say the word object and we, we know, especially if you've been here and you're normally sitting here and listening to scripture being shared, that we know that the right object of our faith is Jesus Christ. It's God himself. Now, by saying the word object, I certainly do not mean that God is some kind of object to be grasped. God is a person. There is no question about that. But in just to say this as a general term, you have to have faith in the right object, the right person. And we see that in Rahab's life. We've read the whole passage. I'm not going to read it all again. I'm just going to look at a few different verses. We see a lot happening right here in the center of the chapter. In the center of the chapter, we see what's going on in Rahab's mind. We know what's happened, right? She, the men have come to her. She, keeps them in, she welcomes them into her house. She hides them on the roof. She tells the king and his men that they already had left. She's protecting them. And in the midst of that, she comes to the men and says a few things that show her heart, show her faith. And the first thing we want to see is, as I said, courageous faith has the right object. You see, Rahab acknowledged in verse 9 God's promises. Verse 9. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. That simple, that simple little phrase. Interesting here that a pagan prostitute would understand God has promised the land to Israelites. He, she does not say, I know that you're going to come and kill us. She, sa- she doesn't say, I'm scared because I know your army is coming. What Rahab says is, I know the Lord has given you this land. It's interesting that Rahab knows more than those ten spies did in the book of Numbers. Rahab, who is the pagan prostitute, knows more than ten men of Israel who came back in the book of Numbers and said, yes, the land is great, but it's going to be too hard for us to take the land. Rahab understands something about God, but the point is she's looking towards God's promises. I don't know how she comes to know this. Did she have people in her family that uh, knew Hebrew scriptures? I I don't know. Have they heard it through, through... the grapevine, so to speak. I don't know how she knows, but she does. And she has faith that the Lord is giving the land to Israel. And so the object of her faith here is in God, the fact that he's made a promise. In verse 11, we see the same type of idea. In verse 11, this is what we read. Rahab says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man of you, uh, because of you, for the Lord your God... He is God, and this is, so, this is so interesting that she says this. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, he is the God of everything. Rahab acknowledges God's authority. Rahab acknowledges that God is the God. It would be normal in pagan society to believe in gods. And even people, and we've seen this even throughout history, might 
see Jesus, to see God, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, as just one of many gods. But we're told throughout scripture, he is the one and only God. And we see that Rahab is acknowledging that by, he is the God of the universe. He is the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. So he is the God. And we see that she understands the authority of God. Once again, how did she come to this? God's mercy, God's grace has been showered on her in some way for her to understand this. But she acknowledges God's promises. She acknowledges God's authority. And now also in verse 12, she acknowledges God's faithfulness. Verse 12. and says this, And now then, please swear to me, notice this, by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And she goes on and asks for a covenant with the men of God. But she doesn't do it. She doesn't just come to them and say, look, I need your help. I need you to swear to me. I need you to give me your word. That's not her point. She's not asking for the word of the spies. She is asking for their word based upon God. It says, by the Lord. Swear to me by the Lord. Rahab understands that God is the faithful one. God is the one that can make a covenant. He is the one that will protect her. He is the one that will give safety to her. And she understands all this. And as I said, we're not told the beginning of Rahab's life beginning of her story we're not told who's in her life that she's hearing the truth from but in some way shape or form she understands these truths that god is a god that fulfills his promises that god is a god above all and he has all authority and that god is faithful to those who he is faithful and she understands these things And so I want to say this again. We've already talked about Joshua this way. We're going to talk a lot about Rahab tonight, today. But when we talk about Rahab, uh, we need to understand that although Rahab is the main character in this chapter, don't forget that it's still not about her. It's still about God. Rahab is not what we should look at and say, I need to be like Rahab. Although there are things that we can learn and principles that we can take. But we need to look at this and understand that God has been working in Rahab's life. God is the hero of the story. God used Rahab. And we can follow her example in ways that will allow us to be more and more like him. But God is the one who is at work. Let us not forget that as we go through this chapter and even the rest of the book. So we start with seeing that courageous faith has the right object. Because you know what? A lot of people have faith in a lot of different things. People have faith in people. People have faith in things. People have faith in money. People have faith in status. People have faith in church. If I go to church, then I'm showing my faith. If I'm just here, then that's good enough. People have faith in so many different things. But faith, just by itself, is not what God is looking for, but he's looking for faith in him. It's not about just faith in general, but it's about the object of faith, who is God himself. So we need to have that as our base. That needs to be our foundation. So this is not faith just to have faith. It's not just faith that things are going to work out okay. This is faith in God himself. Brings us to our next point as we look at the story of Rahab. What does this courageous faith look like? What type of example can we follow? Well, I want to show us first in point two that courageous faith includes knowledge. It includes knowledge. It's knowing God. Knowing him in our minds. It's important to understand and know God. But notice I use the word here includes. It doesn't say courageous faith is knowledge. Courageous faith includes knowledge. Knowing about God. Knowing who God is. And we're going to 
some of these things are going to kind of double over from what we just looked at, but there, we can see it as truth. Here again in verse 9, we see that Rahab says this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then she says, Before we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, to whom you devoted to destruction. Verse 9, we see that Rahab knows of God's promise. We already talked about this, so we won't have to talk about it too long. But once again, Rahab says, I know the Lord has given you the land. She has a knowledge of God's promises. She knows what God is doing. And where she's heard that, where she's studied that, we don't know, but it doesn't matter. She knows God is faithful to his promises. In the next part, we just read in verse 10. Not only does Rahab know of God's promises, but Rahab knew of God's works. Rahab knew what God had done. She knew her history of the Israelite people. She talks about and remembers the fact that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, that the Israelites came out of Egypt, that he gave them great victories over kings that were on the other side of the Jordan. She had heard of the works of God. She knew the works of God, and she had the knowledge And that was part of why she had faith, because she knew God's promises, she knew God's works. And finally, in verses 12 and 13, although not specifically stated, I think it's pretty obvious to see. And she says, Please swear by me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and you shall give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. In 12 and 13, I believe we can make this assumption that Rahab knew of God's mercy. Rahab knew of God's mercy. Rahab knew that God was the God who could save. Otherwise, she wouldn't have asked this question. Otherwise, she wouldn't have tried to to say, By the Lord, will you swear to me that we will be safe? If she had no expectation that God would keep her safe and she was going to be destroyed anyway, then she would have just let it go. But she understands that God is a God of mercy. God is a God of salvation. Does that make sense? She doesn't, she's not going to ask for something if she doesn't really think he's going to give it. So she understands and knows that God has mercy. Maybe it's from hearing the stories of, uh, if they know about the Red Sea, I'm, maybe she's heard about the manna in the desert, the mercy that God showed the Israelites. Maybe she's heard of the different stories that have been uh, told about the Israelites of God's faithfulness and God's mercy and God's salvation, even when they've done really stupid stuff. When they built, a, uh, when they built gods and they worshipped gods that they shouldn't have, and God still had mercy and saved his people. And no doubt, I believe that Rahab has that in her mind because she understands that God is a God of salvation and mercy. So courageous faith involves knowledge. She knew of God. She knew who he was. She knew what he stood for. The next point, though, courageous faith does not only include knowledge, but it includes emotion. I want to be careful on this point. Once again, courageous faith includes emotion. It involves something that stirs us up. God created our emotions. We are not meant to be emotionless robots. God gave us all sorts of emotions, from joy to anger to sadness uh, to uh, fear, all of these things God has given, and they, are, they can be glorifying to him. And the truth of the matter is, is that courageous faith will and does include emotion. I believe we see that in Rahab's life. 
verses 9 through 11. We've already read these verses, but she's very clear that there is fear, that she and her people are in fear of what God can do. Now, we don't like to use this word. We don't like to talk about fear. We think that God is a God of love who's up there and he's got his angels around him with the harp sitting on a cloud and he's just showering people with love and goodness and rainbows all the time. And that's, listen, God is good. God is loving. God is merciful. But God is also just. And God is also a God who does not stand for sin. And he, he puts wrath down upon sin. He took Jesus. Jesus had to take God's wrath on his body because God cannot be around sin. And Jesus took all of God's wrath because Jesus took sin on his own body. And so God is not just the, the loving, kind grandfather in the clouds. God is not that. God is so much more. He is loving, he is merciful, but he is just. And he has righteous anger. And so therefore, there is a truth here that we see Rahab and the people of Jericho are afraid. They have fear of what God is going to do because they've seen what he's done. They know what he's done. And Rahab is fearful in the sense that she knows she is in complete awe and respect. And we say that, that when you look at scripture, you see the word fear and it means to have awe or respect. And you know what, that's true. But sometimes awe and respect includes a little bit of actual fear. Understanding how big and great God is. Listen, I don't have all the time to go through all the passages throughout Scripture of the times when people encounter God. They either encounter Him and they see Him or they see an angel or they're, in, they're around His presence. And every time, they don't start dancing around and jumping up and going, Yee-hoo, yay! No, they fall to their face in fear. Because God is so great. God is so awesome. God is so intimidating that all they can do is fall flat on their face as if they were dead. We see that even with John in the book of Revelation. The one who was told in, in the book of John that he was the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The, 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 the one who knew Jesus, he sees Jesus. And what does he do? He falls to his face in fear and awe and respect. That is fear. And so when we read this, We need to understand that God is a God that we can and should fear in the sense that he is so great that there is nothing we can do to understand him and that he holds the world in his hand. Now as his children, as we understand him, I am not saying that we need to live a life in which we're walking on eggshells because he does offer forgiveness and mercy and grace and love and all those things are just as much a part of him as what we just talked about. But at the same time, we can't live a life in which we just take him flippantly. Like, oh yeah, God is just my, my genie in a bottle. That is not God. God is so much bigger than many of us think. Rahab understood that. Even the people of Jericho understood that. And they were struck with fear. In verses 12 and 13, we've already seen this, where she basically begs the spies to save her. That by the Lord, that they would give, that they would allow her to be safe when they come and take the land. I, I believe that Rahab is feeling desperation for God's help. She is feeling desperation because she knows she needs saving. She's, she's begging and asking and pleading, please allow myself and my family to be safe. 
By the Lord will you promise this. So I believe not only is there a fear in her life, that she truly has this understanding of the greatness of God, and it causes her to fear what he's going to do, but also that she has desperation because she knows, based on the fear she has, that she needs God that much more. She needs his mercy. (coughs) So there's desperation. The last thing in verse 21 It's just a little verse, but it says, And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab felt confidence in God's provision. Confidence in God's provision. She had a fear of the greatness of God and awe and respect of God's greatness so much that she was desperate for him. But then also after God had given her the promise through those spies as they've made that promise, then she has confidence in God's provision. She's not living in doubt or fear any longer, but instead what she's living in here is confidence. We see that because she says, look, according to your words, so be it. It is. But then she also puts the scarlet cord in her window, which is a sign to the Israelites not to kill her, not to destroy her family and and her house. She does that because she knows God is going to come through. Keep in mind that by hanging that scarlet cord out of her window, you never know. There could have been people that would have been like, what's going on with the scarlet cord? Why are you hanging this out the window? She was willing to do that because she had confidence that God was going to protect her, and she did what she was asked to do. And there was confidence there with her. So we've seen that her courageous faith has the right object. It includes knowledge, and now it includes emotion. Uh, But also now, uh, and this is where it all comes together, the fourth point this morning, courageous faith includes action. Courageous faith includes action. Keep your finger in the book of Joshua, but I do want to go over to the book of James. The book of James, and we'll be back here in just a little bit. But uh, I told you before that Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. One time is in Hebrews 11 that we've already read. Another time is in Matthew chapter 1 in which she's part of the genealogy of Jesus. She is also seen uh, in James chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 25. James 2 25. And James is making a point here as he's writing uh, to uh, to Christians who have been scattered, and he's writing to them, and he wants them to understand what faith is all about. In chapter 2, he talks about how faith is uh, believing to the point that your actions will follow. We'll read it in its entirety later on. But what I want to point out here is verse 25. Verse 25, And the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so faith apart from works is dead the whole point of this passage in james is that if you truly believe in jesus if you truly have faith then it'll work itself out in action not that it's our actions not that it's our works that save us we are saved through the grace of jesus christ that he came and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins rose again to defeat sin and death and when we have faith in him and come to him and ask him for forgiveness and hope he gives that that is where salvation is found but when we have that salvation when we have faith in jesus it's going to make a difference in how we live and rahab is used as the example that james uses He also uses Abraham and says Abraham had faith and he showed it by being willing to sacrifice Isaac. He says Rahab had faith and she showed it by receiving the spies, 
by taking in the spies and protecting them. And so a few things as we've looked at this story today. Uh, courageous faith includes action. What did she do? You see, she knew a lot about God. She felt something about God. And all those are great, and that is included in faith. But now she takes that knowledge and that emotion, and she turns it into action. Courageous faith includes action. Rahab received the spies. That's what James just told us. She received the spies. She didn't have to do this. You know, we, we focus on the fact that she hid them on the roof and then lied to the, to the, <clears throat> to the soldiers who came. But before any of that happened, Rahab showed her faith. She already had an understanding of God. Obviously, she knew who these men were. And what we read in verse 1 is very simple. Uh, It says, And they went, in the second half of the verse, And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Rahab did not need to let these men in. What she could have done, knowing who they were, because she obviously did, because she then she later hides them, but she lets them into her home. She gives them lodging in a hostile environment. She knew that this could cost her everything. She knew that this could be a problem. And if she was going to be a good Jericho uh, citizen, she would have just locked the door, left the men out, called the authorities, and not dealt with it. But instead, as we're told in James, and now we see in Joshua, Rahab takes them in. She, the very first thing she does is she reaches out with action and she takes them in. She shows hospitality to God's people. And that is a way of action, her showing her faith. So she received the spies. Then we see throughout this whole story that she protects the spies. Rahab protected the spies. Verses 2 through 7, verses 15 through 21. In verses 2 through 7, it's this interesting story how she hides them on her roof. And then the, the soldiers come and say, where are they? <clears throat> she says, oh, they already came. I didn't know who they were. They left. And you, if you go, you'll probably be able to catch them. And then they're really up on her roof. Uh, later on, then she tells them, hey, I'm going to let you down through my window. You need to run to the hills and wait for three days. And then once three days has passed, then you'll be able to go back to the Jordan and you won't be caught. Rahab knows what's going on. Rahab understands the military strategy of the Jericho army. She understands all this, and she protects the spies. She protected God's people. Now, no doubt you've probably heard this debate before or heard this mentioned as we talk about Rahab. Well, wow, we see here that this means that it's okay to lie in certain circumstances, that God is okay with that because, oh, he writes about it here in the book of Joshua. Now, I'm not going to dive into this too deeply. We could have a discussion that would last hours on whether or not there's ever an instance in which God would say that lying or deception is okay. Is it, is it ever acceptable in God's eyes? Now, the truth of the matter, I believe, as you look at this passage, God could have protected his people without the lies of Rahab. Uh, he could have made them invisible for all we know. God could have done that. God is powerful enough to do that. Now, Rahab, keep in mind, she's just new to the faith. She wouldn't know anything other than deception and lies. That's how she lives. And God used that to protect his spies. I don't think he had to. And also notice that God didn't tell her to lie. And it also doesn't say in this passage that it was good that she lied. In the book of James and in the book of Hebrews, it doesn't say that Rahab was a woman of faith because she lied. It says she was a woman of faith and she showed faith by receiving and protecting the spies. So let's not get too, too, too bogged down here on whether lying is ever okay or not. thing is, God says not to lie, so I'm going to go out of my way to do the best I can not to lie because that's what he asked me to do. God will protect his people, so I don't know how all that works. 
Maybe there's, a, there's an instance or two in life in rare circumstances where you, sometimes you have to make some compromises for the, for the better. I don't know. God does. That's why I'm not going to mess with this. Because it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, yes, lying is okay sometimes. It doesn't say it's never okay either. That's, let's not get bogged down. What Rahab did is she protected the spies. That was where her faith was seen. Her faith wasn't seen in lying. Her faith was seen in protecting. She knew these men needed to be protected. She chose to do it the way she wanted to do it, sinful or not. But she protected the people. She protected God's people. And finally, the last thing that we see courageous faith includes action. We see Rahab shared with her family. And this seems like kind of strange, but in verses 12, 13, and then verse 18, we already read 12 and 13, but in verse 18, it says, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window to which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. This is an interesting concept. In order to get them into her house, when the time would come, Rahab would have had to tell her family, Hey, I've made a deal with these, with God, with God's people. They're going to protect us because I, uh, because we believe that God is coming to give the land to them because God has said He will. So, Dad, Mom, uh, brothers, uh, sisters, I, I, we need you to come into the house to be safe. And Rahab does this. She didn't just keep it to herself and just lock her doors and wait for them to come. Rahab brings in her family. That's where she cares. She wants her family. And so probably her family is of the same mindset as she is, as she, they understand who God is. We don't know that. Maybe God is sparing her whole family simply for her own faith. We don't know that. We don't know enough about her family to make an assumption either way. But she obviously shares her faith with her family. Later on, uh, Joshua chapter 6, we see Rahab and her family. They are spared. We'll get to that. And then eventually they're folded into the Jewish people. They become Israelites. Even though they're not by blood, they become proselytes. They, be, they become part of the, the community of Israel. And so she shared with her family. And so today, what we've seen so far is very simple. Uh, Rahab is an example of what God can do in a life. The faith that God can allow someone to have even when it seems like everything is stacked against them. So for us today, then we can know that there is not just one certain type of people that can come to Christ, that can have faith in God. All of us have the ability and the, uh, to come in faith because God is the one who can do it. But if we are to have true faith, we need to know God. We need to know Him. We need to understand Him. We also need to be really moved by God and have some emotion to, to, have, to understand him and to really feel uh, that God is working. I'm not saying to be crazy emotional all the time. Uh, that's not the point. We'll talk about that in a second. And it also includes action, doing, proving our faith through what we do. So some questions to ask, and we'll be looking at a few passages as we do. First question is, is Jesus the real and only object of your faith? Is Jesus the only real object of faith in your life? Maybe today that you've put your faith in other people. Maybe you've put faith in your job. Maybe you've put faith in um, uh, some, uh, something you do that you enjoy. Maybe you've put faith in money. Maybe you've put faith 
in even coming to church every Sunday. And you feel like because I do that, I have faith that God is going to do good things because I do these things. That is not the point of faith. Faith is to be faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, right after chapter 11, which we've already talked about. Chapter 11 gives a list of people who have shown faith in God. And then Rahab is mentioned in that list. As we continue on in Hebrews, we go to chapter 12. Chapter 12 in Hebrews. And right in the first couple verses, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's all those people who showed faith. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember all these people that have had faith, so that you can have faith as well. But then he says this in verse 2 of chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Running the race of faith is not just believing that things are going to work out. Running the race of faith is looking to Jesus. It is running with endurance that race that is set before us as we look to him who is what? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Everything, our faith, is all about Jesus. So is he your only real object of faith? A quote from Charles Spurgeon, which some of you will know the name, very famous preacher from uh, years and years ago. But he has this, this, this quote that I found that I believe is exactly what we're looking at here. He looked at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this is what he said of it. He said, Our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God in whom faith relies. Let me say it one more time because I know I didn't write, you don't have this typed out. Charles Spurgeon said, Our life is found in looking unto Jesus, not in looking to our own faith. By faith, all things become possible to us, yet the power is not in the faith, but in the God in the whom faith relies. My question to you today is do you know Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you believe in Him? Or are you believing in something else? You see, Jesus came to this world. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sin and for my sin to take the wrath of God on sin on himself. He did that for you and for me so that we could have eternal life, so that we could have a relationship with God that has nothing in between us any longer, that Jesus would be the the mediator between us. And God did all of that. Jesus did all of that. And we need to come to him in faith and believe in the forgiveness that he offers. Believe in everything he is and everything he gives. And when we have faith in that and we turn towards him and embrace that, that is faith. And if you haven't done that today, you need to make him the only object of your faith. More questions to ask as we continue on in our conclusion. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Let us not forget that part of faith, of knowing God, of believing in God, is knowing him. Knowing about him. Knowing his word. These things are important. If we are to have true, courageous faith, we need to be growing in our knowledge of God. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight. Second Peter three eight or sorry, eighteen. Second Peter three eighteen. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And keep in mind that I, I'm not taking this out of context, because earlier in Second Peter, it talks about knowing things so that we can refute false teachings. So the whole point of this is the knowledge of Jesus so that we will see what error is out there. So we need to know who God is, so when people come and tell us how they think God is, that we know who God is, that we have read his word, that we know him, and we won't be led astray. So are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you taking time? To read his word. Not only just read it for a hobby, but read his word, take it in, really take it and try to understand and meditate and want to do what he says to do in scripture. Do you know him? Do you truly want to know him more? Do you read his word? That's the only way you're going to get to know God. You can't know him through experiences. You can go out and say, wow, this is a beautiful creation. And you can say, God, you're such a great creator. That is true. But if you really want to know everything about who God is and what he stands for, you need to be in his word. The next question, though, are you emotionally connected to God? Now, I want to be very clear on this. Our emotions don't dictate our faith. We don't feel a certain way and say, well, because I feel this way, I know I am having real faith. Because I feel this way, I am having faith. Our emotions don't dictate our faith. Our faith in God dictates our emotions. How we feel and the way we relate to people and the way God uses our emotions should be based on faith in him, not the other way around. Because if we do it the other way around and we're all based on how we feel, the times in life when we feel down, the times in life when we feel like, where is God maybe, uh, when we'll run away because I don't feel it anymore, so I'm just going to give it up. No, the point is when we know God, then hopefully the, pr- the prayer and hope is that the emotions that we feel will come from him. The truth of the matter, and I don't have time to go to all these passages, is throughout the New Testament and throughout the whole Bible, especially we look at the book of Psalms, we could read that and you could see the gamut of emotions that David and the other writers of the Psalms had. But the truth of the matter, even looking at the New Testament, we see that true faith leads to gratitude, thanksgiving. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 tells us that we need to be thankful and have gratitude. Uh, their true faith leads to peace. Philippians 4, 7, the peace that passes all understanding. And that's on the heels of saying, don't be anxious, but find peace in God. There is a, an emotion to have there. Effect, uh, affection. Romans twelve ten. have brotherly affection for one another. A feeling of affection, of love. There's a feeling there. It's emotion. Joy is throughout scripture. John sixteen thirty four is just one instance in which Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. There is also a healthy fear. Luke 12, 4 and 5 says, don't fear those people who can hurt your body. Fear the one who can send, uh, that is in charge of your soul, is basically what the verse says. A healthy fear in the greatness of God. Not a fear of like, oh, what's God going to do to me now? I'm so scared. That's not the fear. But the fear is, God, you are so great and powerful. I am nothing apart from you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. And that is, that is real healthy fear. Contentment is another thing we see. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, I have learned in all things to be content. Contentment is a feeling. It's saying, I have enough because I have Jesus. But notice all of those feelings, and there's so many more, by the way, we could go through and do a whole Bible study and all the emotions we see in Scripture. But the whole point, remember, is that these emotions are a result of faith. They're not something that leads us to faith. And finally, is your faith proven by the way you live? Back to James chapter 2. I said we'd be back there. James chapter 2. 
I need to read this whole passage, and this is something I'm sure many of you have heard before, but Philippians chapter, or sorry, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and is lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith from apart, apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was co- completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is not a passage that says that good works equal salvation. Keep in mind, he's talking about the fact that this is someone who says they have faith. So we're, the whole point is, if we say we have faith, then it will be backed up in the way we live. It's just the truth of Scripture. When you truly believe something, when you have true faith in something, it's going to affect the way you live. I've used this before. I'll use it again. I have faith right now that this stage is going to hold me up. If I didn't have faith that this stage was going to hold me up, I would be on the floor instead of up here. When we have faith, it'll, it'll mean we do something with that faith. That is the nature of truly believing in something. And that's what James is saying. He's saying if you truly have faith in Jesus, then it's going to show up in the way you live. Just like it did for Abraham, just like it did for Rahab. Not that the works themselves are what save, but the works will follow the faith that saves. That is what James says. It's also seen throughout the rest of Scripture. And I love this verse in the middle of here where it says, Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, we've talked about knowledge, we've talked about emotions, but guess who has knowledge and guess who has emotions about God? The demons. The demons know more about God than you and I ever will. The demons have a clearer understanding of the emotions that come, up, come with, no, with God. They are fearful, they know what their end is going to be, and they have, they have more fear of God than any one of us ever will. So they have more knowledge and they have more emotion, but where does it end? While they might know him in their minds, they might know him in the sense of emotion, but they do not know Jesus in their actions. They are working against him and not for him. And James's point is very clear. If the demons can believe intellectually, if they can believe emotionally, then and yet they're not saved, we have to consider the same thing for ourselves. So going back to the word that I used when we talked about courageous faith, it includes knowledge. It includes emotion. It includes action. All three working together, the whole of our being. How we think, how we feel, and what we do. All of it comes together. That is true faith. So if you are living a life right now in which you say you have faith in Jesus, but you are not actively knowing him, 
learning about him, trying to figure him out and understand him as best you can, even though we never will until we get to heaven and then we'll still be figuring things out about him for eternity. But we want to know him more and more. And if that's not you, then you need to really consider your heart. And if you are coming to church and you might know a lot about the Bible, you might even be doing the right things and you're serving, but your heart is never in it and you feel nothing. You feel no, you feel nothing for God. And when you're serving Him, it's just a, uh, just an act that has no emotion connected to it. Then you need to examine your heart. And finally, if, You might even know God, you might know his scripture, and you might feel a lot of things. You might come and worship and raise your hand or or feel some emotion welling up inside you when you worship, or you feel sadness even over your sin, but then it never does anything. And, And you're just living a life in which you know a lot and you feel a lot, but you're not doing anything. Then you need to examine your heart because that's not true faith. These three things come together, the whole of our person as we believe in Jesus. Rahab was just one example of this. We have so many more throughout scripture. But those are the things we need to think about. As we think about Rahab, we think about faith. Do we know God? Do we connect with him emotionally? And are we living the faith we say we have? With all that, let's close in prayer as the worship team comes forward. Lord, thank you for